episode is brought to you by Slate House Publishing, recorded at Wayne Howard Studios. Action. <laughs> Karate chop. So I don't, I'm trying, so if you were named Trevor. I am named Trevor. If you were named, comma, Trevor, comma, <laughs> the grammarian speaks. No, I'm sorry. I am saying it wrong. If you had any animal named after you, Trevor, what animal would you want named after you and why? I feel like I'm on an episode of the dating game. This is really deep. (laughs) This is like one of those interview questions and you just, you know, you're not going to get the job based on your answer. If you had, I'll, I'll narrow it down for you. If you had a species of South American snake named after you, Trevor, what would its name be? Uh, something in Latin, I'm sure. What's the Latin for Trevor? Trevorino. Trevorinus. This is uh, this is totally unrelated. <laughs> Trevor anus. What? <laughs> Trevor anus. 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 <laughs> yes. Okay. So my my name actually doesn't show up in Spanish, uh, and and of course it wouldn't show up in Latin if it doesn't show up in Spanish, and. Uh, when I was living in Spain, nobody could pronounce my name right because it, you know, that they have to snap their R's, right? It's it's got to be like a hard R. So when I would try to say my have you name, you snapped your R. I mean, only when I'm going dirty. to the bathroom. I don't I, I don't know how to answer that. No, so I I would try to say my say my name and it would be like too soft for them. They they wouldn't be able to produce the sounds with their mouth. So eventually, I just started writing it down, and they'd go, "Oh yeah, Trevor," and Trevor. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, basically, <laughs> and and but then when you say that enough times, it starts to sound like the word Trevor, which in Spanish means clover. So my name is not at all related to the word clover, like in any etymology. But when we'd be out in like these social outings or whatever, they'd be like, oh, let's get a picture with the clover guy. And so like anytime we'd see like an Irish pub or something like that, they demand that we get a picture together. (laughs) And I'm like, you guys know that like this has nothing. I don't know why, but, you know, my my real name has nothing to do with this word. You know when I type this description up for the, the this episode, I'm going to call you cl- uh, Clover. Yeah, Clover. It's so, it's the running joke. So sure. Clover, I mean, you know Spanish really well. Can you imagine how they would say my name? Well, yeah, I th- I'm pretty sure I've run into a couple of Jeremy's. But see, that's the problem because I worked at a barbecue restaurant in Houston in high school, uh-huh. and everybody else was a Spanish-speaking person, and they could not pronounce the J as like a J oh, American well, yeah. sound. Yeah, that, so it became something see. like they were calling me everything from Yet like. But it wasn't even that; it was like Herman. They were calling me. It's like Herman. Go get the peach cobbler, Herman. Herman, chop the biscuit, chop I, the brisket, Herman. Herman. And I'm like, my name's Jeremy. And so, like, I had a, a practice one night with, the like, the head guy, like, the chef guy there. Uh-huh. And I'm like, all right, say it with me. Jeremy. Herman. Jeremy. Herman. <laughs> Jeremy. <laughs> Jeremy. And it was like, okay, that's as close as we're going to get. And, but yeah. it sounded still better than Herman. I had, uh, I had a French roommate <clears throat> who was named Jeremy, so... So, Trevor, why am I asking about South American snakes and Spanish-speaking people? Is this a what? Is this a we? pop quiz? Like, are you asking me if well, I, I want you to? I, I figured, episode? yeah, I figured you could tell the audience. 
Yeah, all three of them. There's a uh, there's a South American snake that's named after today's author. Apostolepis. I'm sorry. I apologize to to any Latin speakers out there. Yeah, we've really like lost native the Latin, native Latin speakers. You know, we, we promise we'll go to ancient Vesuvius and you know ask for forgiveness before the volcano erupts. Um, uh, it is the Apostolepis Kiroge. That sounds right. I think it's the ending is AI. So is that Kiroge? Kirogai. Kirogai. That sounds almost like samurai, like Japanese. Almost. Anyway, so today we are talking about Horatio Quiroga. Horatio Quiroga. That's how you say it if you're not from, you know, Northwest Arkansas. <laughs> you're not from Arkansas. <laughs> Horatio Quiroga. Horatio Quiroga. And his influential story. Had the, himself a quesadilla the for, feather for lunch. pillow. So, you know what I noticed the other day, Trevor? I just learned that the actor who played Jombie on Pee-wee's Playhouse passed away this past summer. Did you know that? I've, do you I know don't what, even know who that is. Do you know what Pee-wee's Playhouse is? Well, yeah, but I don't, I don't know who Jombie is. Jombie was the genie. The guy, the little head in the box that would I've, always I've pop out. I've only seen and, the movie where he makes fun of the Alamo. Like, that's the only one that's, I've seen. Oh, my gosh. So you miss Pee-wee's Playhouse. Well, Pee-wee's Playhouse, like every piece of furniture, everything in his house, it was a Saturday morning kids cartoon, which, in retrospect, knowing everything that happened with Pee-wee Herman, <laughs> like, is, like, really disturbing. But it was really, really... Um, it was really entertaining, and every piece of furniture had a personality to it, and it would talk. Like, there was a chair, and the chair's name was Cherry, and it would talk. And Pee-wee would go around, <laughs> you know, talk, doing all this, and, yeah, and, like, the word of the day, and he'd go up to Jombie, and Jombie would have to do, like, a grant him a wish and make a magic spell. And so he'd be like, all right, Pee-wee, in order for this spell to come true, we have to say the magic words. Mecca licka high, mecca hiney ho. <laughs> oh, no. And they'd repeat it over and over again. Yeah. So I just found out that Jombie died. And I got to thinking after thinking about like the feather pillow, I got to thinking about like the, the furniture that was animated in Pee Wee's Playhouse. And what if any of them were evil? What if Cherry was evil? And then I thought, well, Jombie's dead. And that kind of makes me mecca licka high, mecca hiney low. Oh my god. I'm I'm really sad. So all well, right, let's get hold, to the point. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> hold the fort. We just went through that entire aside for that shitty pun. Yes. That's my level of commitment to this podcast. <laughs> I will make us go. I will go that extra mile for a shitty pun. I promise you. You have my guarantee. I will go that extra mile. For that shitty pun. <laughs> Walked right into that one. Walked right into it. Anyway, has any furniture personally attacked you? <laughs> Just getting attacked by my vampiric furniture over here. I almost would prefer that to going through that pun again. I'm going to have to re-listen to this episode. I hear I mean, that pun every time. I know it's it's priceless, oh, isn't it? Man, has the any shit my put, brain comes up with. It's it's incredible. <laughs> it's incredible. Has any furniture ever attacked you? No. Well, uh, I don't know. I'm somebody surely has dropped something on me at one point in time or another. Surely, 
Well, they have, and don't call me Shirley. Right. Oh, that's an old joke. Okay, I won't go there. Uh, I don't know about attacked. My Ottoman just recently decided to give up the ghost. I, you know, the, I sat down on the Ottoman, and it caved in, and that's when I realized, like, maybe I should go to the gym. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's usually a good indicator when, you know, the Ottoman Empire falls. And... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately, Hanks won't replace it. They're, they're, like, they're like really fighting me on that. Those bastards, like, how old is it? It's not, like, I have a lifetime warranty on it, and they just refuse well, it's to it's dead now, so the lifetime other. warranty's over. Well, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's that's Hanks for you. You killed it. You the fall it. of the Ottoman Empire was some dude named Hank. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. <laughs> that's a King of the Hill quick reference there for you folks. It was a bad one, but it was still one. Um, all right, wait, why don't we, this is going to be a short episode after our last really long, really involved foray into the summer 2021 movies. And let us know if you like longer episodes like that. We like yeah. feedback. Uh, we could do another movie roundup, you know, for the, the fall or for the winter. You just let us know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Let us know. Um, but today we're going to keep this episode kind of short. Uh, again, we are looking at Trevor, say the name. Horacio Quiroga. The Feather Pillow. Uh, and so we're going to tell you a little bit about this story, and we're going to talk about Quiroga's influence on literature and both in South America and what he brought to um, the U.S., and talk about his craft a little bit and just kind of kind of go from there. So um, I guess we should start with, we've joked around, so the Quiroga is important because, um, as an author, he was so important that uh, the I guess whoever names snakes gives them Latin names. Like whoever yeah. does that, named a South American snake after him, which again I said was Apostolepis Quiroga. Um, more importantly, Quiroga brought Edgar Allan Poe to South American writers, and his uh, style of writing influenced the genre of magical realism. And Gabriel Garcia Marquez and Julio Cortazar. Julio Cortazar. I missed a T there. I missed missed a T. I think I added that T to Horatio Quiroga's name in the title. Yeah, you did. So I just displaced the T. It's all good. It it was it went for a journey and it was found. It was. We We found found the T, folks. Don't worry. We found it. Um, Horacio Quiroga is one of my favorite authors, and one of the reasons why I actually pushed to include him on the podcast, because I think that a lot of people don't know about his fiction, because for so long, he's kind of been kept, you know, behind that wall of translation. And uh, fortunately, we found a translation of his work, um, just kind of through happenstance, right? I was thumbing through a, a just an anthology of horror that I had. And I spotted his name and I said, Jeremy, I'm pretty sure you have the same anthology. We kind of got to talk about this story. Yeah. Um, And I will post that on the website as well too, which anthology we found the work in. If you want to go tackle that story and some others. Yeah. And there are a couple of other recent translations of Quiroga that have made their way to American shores. And uh, I think that's really, really awesome. I read him in the original Spanish when I was doing my master's degree and was really just impressed by 
how cool his horror is. Um, and of course, I'm also a, a huge fan of the aforementioned Julio Cortazar, who has some fiction that I really want to bring onto the show again in a future episode. Uh, but today, I think it's it's important enough to just say Quiroga was one of those dudes in Latin American literature that kind of proved that there was or, or could be a very rich tradition for literature that came out of um, South America. But he wasn't just an author. That's kind of the interesting thing, yeah. right? He did a ton of stuff. He was... Where was he born? Let's start with his little basic biography. Well, he was born in Uruguay in 1878. That's Uruguay for everyone who doesn't have a master's in Spanish. <laughs> yeah, he was interested in a lot of stuff. Um, he actually didn't even come into literature until much later in his life. Um, he had an interest in chemistry, photography, mechanics, cycling, eventually. He founded the Salto Cycling Club down there. So. Yeah. He also, um, you know, worked at a machinery repair shop. He was interested in, in philosophy. Uh, eventually he, he bought a farm and tried to, to hack it as a farmer. And he had a, a very unfortunate time with that. I think if you read this guy's biography, you, you'll see that there's a lot of tragedy that strikes throughout his life. Um, and one of his greatest financial failures was trying to run a farm. Hey, for, the, for our audience that are interested in that nonfiction aspect of some of the authors we talk about, how about you give me um, the biograph, uh, biographical information, like the book, like if there's a biography out about him, and we could include that too on the website. Sure, yeah. Cool. Um, he discovered poetry at the age of 22 uh, through uh, Edgar Allan Poe and, I'll let you tackle the name. Leopoldo Lugones. Very good, very good. Um, he, he published poems himself and then became friends with Lugones. Um, he was a follower of modernist philosophy um, and fan of Poe and Guy de Maupassant. He, uh, his writing is always tinged with horror, disease, insanity, human suffering. So, you know, all the good stuff, all the fun stuff there. Um, yeah. And he was also influenced by Rudyard Kipling and his story Jungle Tales. It, was it the Jungle Tales or the Jungle Book? Uh, my source said Jungle Tales. Okay. But, I mean, I'm pretty sure Rud Rudyard Kipling is the Jungle Book, like with Mowgli and all that. Yeah, I knew he was, but I guess this was maybe the book that I don't, maybe I should not get this off of Wikipedia. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it could be, it could be the Jungle Tales. It could be like, I don't know. It could have been just a, I don't know, a localization change. It could have been. Yeah. Maybe it is the Jungle Tales. And no, it is the Jungle Book. I'm looking at it now and Wikipedia has corrected the mistake. So. <laughs> it is the Jungle Book. Um, yeah. I knew it was the Jungle. I knew it was Mowgli. I knew what they were talking about. But yeah. I just. I mean, he he was very he he man. He's very broad. He wrote so much stuff. I mean, uh, especially his poetry. I think was a, a pretty big deal. I think the Feather Pillow actually was one of the first horror stories that he wrote that really started to make the big time. So. Tell us a little bit about some of the themes he liked to play around with, because oftentimes we find that authors like to stick to and kind of mull over different themes and different topics and ideas. So what do you know some of, of Kiroga's? There's so much domestic horror, um, for sure, and, and scenes of, of like the pain of loss um, 
especially. Quiroga was a, a pretty tragic figure. I don't think we brought this up in his biography yet, but he committed suicide. Um, I think he ingested poison, but I'm not entirely sure. He watched several of his family members die of self-inflicted gun wounds, uh, a couple of suicides. Uh, yeah, pretty bad. Um, at one point in time, I believe he was he was polishing a gun, and the gun went off in his hand and shot one of his best friends in the face. So you're telling me he pulled a what was that vice president's name? A Dick Cheney. A Dick Cheney. He pulled, he pulled a, Dick a Dick Cheney. Yeah, rather unfortunately. <laughs> um, we just lost Dick Cheney. I'm sorry. We keep losing these Republican leaders from our audience. I know. How I'm can we get starting Dick, to think? How can that we get Dick Cheney back? A little biased. Dick Cheney, do you want me to shoot Trevor in the face? Will that bring you back? I'm, I I'm just kidding. I'm not going to shoot my friend in the face. You said, "How do we get Dick Cheney back?" And my mind went to a completely different place. Like, how do we get Dick back? Yeah. How do we get Dick back? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, by the way, most of these episodes are not appropriate for little kids. So. <laughs> Only now are you telling them? Yeah, after our 74-minute tirade on blowjobs. Um, yeah, no, most of these are not appropriate for little kids. So, uh, yeah, yeah, we're so wondering, we'll, we'll, we'll mull over how to get Dick back in our good graces. <laughs> um, you know what? I'm, let's, let's toss that question over to Friends of the Podcast, the... Sip and Smut podcast. Okay. Uh, okay. Hosted by Jessica Hyertz and Caitlin Williamson. Uh, <laughs> if you're interested in figuring out how to get the dick back, go listen <laughs> to that podcast. You're going to have a real weird time. <laughs> um, so he's dealt in a number of different themes. What themes yeah. did you notice in The Feather Pillow? Uh, so, I mean, The Feather Pillow is is kind of a mix of that domestic horror that I mentioned. This idea of the loss of a loved one very suddenly and unexpectedly. He also combines it with this notion of the conflict between man and nature, right? And man's will to survive and nature's will to survive. So a lot of his stories are going to focus on kind of the the somewhat antagonistic relationship that man has with the natural landscape. And if you know anything about Uruguay and Uruguay's jungle... Remember, folks, that's Uruguay. Then you'll know that uh, it makes sense that this guy was so much preoccupied with this antagonistic relationship as he himself tried to conquer the land in his unsuccessful farming duties, right? Or his unsuccessful farm. Um, and, and found that it was just, you know, not working with him. So the pillow is an example almost of the land. Bouncing yeah. Back. I, th so. I think that we need to view the, well, it's, and it's not even necessarily the pillow, but what's in the pillow. Yeah. So, Ooh, let's, it's a really short story. So why don't we give them a quick breakdown of what the story's about? Yeah. The story is about a married couple who, move into their new home and find shortly after moving in that the wife has some kind of anemic disease and is wasting away day by day, hour by hour until finally she dies and there's 
There's no real medical explanation for what happened to her. Until the maid opens the pillow. Until the maid tries to check out her bed pillow where she was laying. And screams. <laughs> because there's a creepy crawly in there. Yeah. It's a vampire pillow, folks. A vampire Vampiric pillow. pillow. Straight out of like, I think he probably inspired like some of those 1950s schlock kind of. I am sure. When horror. I read a story like <clears throat> this, it's really interesting how, how close I think it is to other similar horror writers that were writing at the end of the 19th century. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you think of like E.F. Benson, M.R. James, uh, even Edith Wharton a little bit has some of that. Yeah. Um, very, very similar styles. Edgar Allan Poe for sure. I oh mean, yeah. You can you see, see Poe's influence. You all see Poe's influence just dripping through his work. Yep. Exactly. And this is one of those that I think is, is very, very much, uh, a story that, that would fit within Poe's uh, repertoire. So one of the things that bothers me as far as talking about craft with the, when it comes to, to writers is trying to decipher between craft of the translator and craft of the original author. When an author, when a work is translated from another language into English, some of the, the initial resonance, some of the craft that the author put into it is lost for the translator who tries to make the story make sense in English. Um, for those of you who don't know, translation is its own animal in creative writing. Mm -hmm. There are people who get MFAs and, and masters in translation so that they can go out and do justice to these works. And sometimes it works really well and sometimes it doesn't. And so I feel like we lose something in that translation of the craft from Spanish into English. We have to rely on the translator to do a good job of this, and that's not always going to be the case. Yeah, and rather unfortunately with translation too, you know, if if it's a lesser known author or a, a very, you know, very much not so important author, I think you're going to find that a lot of translators are not very faithful to the people they're translating. Right, like I think about like somebody like say Haruki Murakami who right. is very, very big, and the publisher is going to spend a lot of money and really vet the translator that they stick yeah. onto Murakami's work. But somebody like Horatio Quiroga, who is no longer alive, who may not even have a grandchild that's alive anymore, um, if they're just doing this for a cheap compilation, I think the one we bought was like four or 500 pages long, a hardcover, and it was only like eight bucks or yeah, something. Yeah, it's, it's all public domain stuff. I so mean, as, as a result, even the translation that, that we're seeing of Kiroga from that collection is from someone who translated it like 100 years ago. Yeah, but it had to have been far enough back that the translation is now in public domain. Um, so you have to keep in mind that what we say necessarily about the craft um, and is not necessarily reflective of that author in its original language, but it's more reflective of like how the translator tackled that work. And I love Kiroga. I love this story. I love what he was doing with this story. Um, I did have some issues with this translation. Um, I felt that the story bounces around in perspective, and that might have been the translator. It might have also been Kiroga because that was a popular thing to do. Some of you who know me and some of you have heard me talk about this in the past might remember that I said there's no such thing as a true third-person omniscient narrator. Um, the truth of the matter is, is that it's not popularly used because it gets way too convoluted, way too confusing for the reader. 
a case in point, um, if you've ever read, I think we mentioned in talking about this before, like uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, he and the Hobbit, um, Tolkien does this a lot. He jumps from one perspective to another, almost like within the same paragraph. And it gets really confusing for the reader. And so that technique is not as popular anymore. We see the same thing in this story when we get into the wife's head very, very briefly before she dies. And again, it's just an odd, like, we want to know who's telling us the story or at least have it make sense. And and that kind of loses um, a little a little bit of ground when, when you think about that. Um, Do you think that in this case, though, something li- like a, a, a short perspective shift could, I don't know, increase the tension, augment the tension? Oh, absolutely. Bit? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I feel like it did. Um, I'm not saying it was totally bad. I'm just saying it was like jarring. Like, oh, sure. Yeah. yeah stylistically. Stylistically yeah. jarring. Like you notice it because it's not something that's done very much anymore, at least not without reason. And I feel like the reason that's probably the reason why I did it to increase that tension. Um, but I, I also feel like that that it's just not something that we normally see. So right. um, but I think that so I've been I've been really stuck lately on this idea of the objective correlative. And I've been talking about it all season long that stuff. From T.S. Eliot. Right? The T.S. Eliot stuff, where yeah. the outside is meant to mirror the inside. Um, <clears throat> what we have with this short story, though, is that the danger isn't reflecting the interior. The outside isn't reflecting, this monster isn't reflecting the interior. We have a, an outside thing, an outside creature that is intruding on what is a safe space. Right. I yeah. mean, what can be safer than a pillow? You know, <laughs> you lay your head on it. Every single night, you spend a third of your life on that pillow, unless you buy a new pillow. And don't buy a my pillow, though. Don't buy a my pillow. We've just lost lost the Mike Lindell. It's like we're at war with these Republicans. (laughs) Please come back, Mike Lindell and Mike Lindell. We need your endorsement. And Liz Cheney, I heard you're off the View now. So and Joel Osteen and Joel Osteen, we've we've talked to you before. We want you guys back. Rudy, you can stay where you are. Yeah, Rudy, stay where you're at. Pence, just stay home with your mama. It's whatever. Um, we hadn't even insulted Pence yet. Well, I just I wanted him to feel included. Just, just preemptive. I wanted him to feel included because <laughs> ultimately That's it's going to come. Probably more included than he was even in the Trump presidency. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's cool. Way to get a dig in there too. We are, we are just totally isolated ourselves from this entire populace. Um, you know, and what good Republican isn't going to want to learn more now about literature? And, oh, well. We're, we're, <laughs> We've really <laughs> shot ourselves in the foot here. <laughs> we, yeah. We, we're in such a danger now. Okay. <laughs> um, so, so, um, so, yeah, what I do like about this, though, is that the story itself is really short and that the ending is really punchy. It's got that shock ending, you know, and and I think that's great. I think it's um, all in all, it's a terrific story. I mean, despite the little jarring kind of kind of issues, um, it was relatively kind of a, a new genre for like a South American writer. So you would almost expect there to be a few missteps, too. Right. Yeah, I mean, he really did explore a lot of horror. And this isn't to say that horror didn't exist in South American writing prior to this point, but I think that this, uh, Horacio Quiroga kind of exists as this transitional figure as Latin American literature started to explore more fantastic styles of fiction. I think that uh, Borges, for example, you know, later, 
who, who came a little bit later, uh, really explored fantasy. Cool. Yeah, Borges is is very influenced but by. But Quiroga, you know, as that kind of transitional figure between um, what would have been more kind of call it a, a biographical uh, kind of fiction or historical fiction uh, set in the founding of many of these South American colonies. You know, Quiroga, I think, is is one of the figures that we see branching out into new fantasy horror fiction um, and kind of showcasing that, you know, maybe there's a new era of literature coming for... I think that there is. I think that as we move away from these concrete ideas of like horror and sci-fi and fantasy, and we start seeing genre blends, I think we're going to see a, um, a larger kind of blending of craft styles that are really going to explore what each of these kind of genres have to, to offer. I, I feel like that we're seeing it some in film culture especially you know we have like say the evil dead movies that are as much comedy as they are oh, horror, yeah. or stan versus evil or whatever you want to you know sean Ver, you know sean, sean versus, versus the dead sean stan versus, the versus dead. evil is that a thing i think it was i feel like it was maybe i'm thinking or, was, are you thinking like tucker and dale versus evil well there was tucker and dale versus evil but there was a stan one too wasn't there wasn't stan in something or am i just thinking of south park i have no idea I don't know either, but I'm just, I'm like freaking out. Did I miss the bus on something? Yes. Always. It's okay though. My point is, is that as, unless we try to, you know, the only thing that's going to stop us right now is stopping to try and define or name or label these new blends of genre. And I think that's a mistake. I don't think we need to necessarily do that. We just need to explore the wide range of what can be offered blending these different genres together. And I think Kiroga was a great example of how this works. Um, I feel like just about everybody we're talking about this season is really, really good mm -hmm. example that, you know, you can call them horror, but there are elements of literary, there are elements of pulp, there are elements of, of other genres blended in with this. And I feel like that that's really, really important as us as a publisher trying to show what it is that we're interested in. Sure. But also as the industry grows and evolves and readers come in. Yeah. As, as an audience, I think that we kind of owe it to ourselves to recognize when something's doing something really well or when something's doing something a little interesting or, or different and not just kind of fall into the rote, I think of, I don't know, categorizing everything the same way. I don't know. I, I struggle a lot as a consumer, as a, a reader of literature, how, how should I look for new material? Because it's not always the way that things are marketed to me that I think works. So I guess one way we would suggest doing that is listen to our podcast. Give us your feedback. Tell us what you think about some of the stuff we're talking about hey, is here. Is there somebody that you want us to talk about? Yeah. Is there somebody you want us to talk about? Check us out on social media. We have, um, not only uh, at House Slay on Twitter, but we also have an Instagram for Slay House. We have a TikTok and a Reddit for Slay House, and we are also uh, we also have a um, TikTok and a Twitch and YouTube. Pioneering and Twitch. This is the first episode we are recording with a video stream too. We are, and when you look at us, just. Just turn the video off. And we look almost exactly how we sound. 
We do, which is not, hey, that's not a great thing, man. We don't want to lose any more readers than we already have. Um, but we're also going to have all these social media platforms specifically for the podcast. So you're going to see, um, of course, uh, the the Twitter and all of that for Slayhouse Publishing. But also look for these as Instagram, um, as Instagram Twitter, TikTok. all of this, TikTok for Slayhouse Publishing presents Lit Bits. So we are branching out. We have multiple things. Remember, too, that we have a title out right now, A Mindful of Scorpions. We have, um, uh, we're, by the time you guys hear this, we're probably going to be closed for submissions for the anthology, but we're getting a lot of good uh, stories in for the anthology I'm really excited about. We have a Patreon. We have a Buy Me a Coffee. Check out our website, slayhouse.com. Um, I'm going to go get a haircut. Because, and I look rough. He's only going to get one haircut, though. Yeah, that's Not the dad joke them. for the day. I'm going to get one. I'm going to get a haircut. He had a pun on have a dad joke. It's just because he can't afford to get all of his hairs cut. I can't. That's what our Patreon is going to support today. If you support our Patreon this week, I will get two hairs cut. A nose hair and one of my ear hairs. I've got, the, I've got the, I've got the, I've got the haircut itself on layaway. So. <laughs> the nose cut, though. <laughs> All right, thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you.